according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in the book of Jeremiah, and this morning we arrive at Jeremiah chapter 9. In Jeremiah chapter 9, I've referenced several times that uh, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. I didn't make that up, and I didn't give him the name. He's been called that for centuries, and uh, this chapter uh, helps explain it. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. If you've ever had in your soul a uh, sadness over a nation that you live in that is not the nation it used to be, then uh, perhaps this is a chapter that may resonate, that may communicate in many ways. And I think uh, the book of Jeremiah does come alive in, uh, in very powerful ways related to that. All right? I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. Let's go before our Father. Is there a... Oh... We're supposed to say the Pledge of Allegiance, are we not? All right. Given that our nation is not what it used to be, let's do that. Would you please stand? Thank you. This is the first Sunday of the month. We started a tradition, and then we lost it. (laughs) I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Amen. Thank you. Next month we'll do the Texas flag. How about that? We'll alternate back and forth. Remind me. Remind me, or otherwise I'll forget. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. The nation is not what it used to be. The nation is a sad reflection of the positive volition they used to have for the truth of the Word of God. And uh, unlike Israel, Israel has promises of a future restoration. The United States of America does not. No Gentile nation does. And so should uh, the Lord destroy us by virtue of his judgment function of his righteousness, then uh, we have to deal with that accordingly. And I pray that we'll have the doctrine to deal with that when that day comes. All right, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's ask the Father to bless our time of study today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for your truth. We thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the stability that your word provides. And Father, anybody can look around and see terrible things. And Father, anybody can grumble about it. But the scriptures give us hope. And the truth of your word equips us. And Father, with the power of your Holy Spirit, especially as church-age believers... Father, we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment that comes through your Spirit. And so, Father, we're not here to grumble. We may lament. We may utter lamentations. But even a lamentation, Father, is an expression of confidence in your glory, in your character, in your plan. And I pray, Father, that we might identify with Jeremiah even as he weeps, that we would learn how to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, that we might appropriately, biblically, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we too might lament the day and age in which we live, Father, as we serve to proclaim Christ to this lost and dying world. I do thank you for your faithfulness, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. 
Amen. Verse 2. What are we going to do about it? Are we just going to sit here and cry? Or are we going to maybe go away? Yeah, that, that helps. Let's just go away. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them. For all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. Let's just get away from it all. Let's find a cabin somewhere. All right, desert may not be fun, maybe a mountain or someplace. Let's just get away from it. Let's get away from it all. Monasticism can be tempting. Monasticism can be very tempting. And I think in many generations throughout church history has come the temptation on the part of believers to say, to heck with all you unbelievers, we're just going to go form a commune somewhere. We're going to form a, 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 a monastery. We're just going to get away from it all. See, there's no, uh, hermits have no peer pressure, you understand. And so there is a temptation on the part of Christians who are sick of the world we're living in to get away from it all. The problem is that that answer, that escape, is not God's escape. That's not the way of escape He provides in our testing. And that's not the assignment we have. We are commanded to be children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so we have those responsibilities. But monasticism can be tempting. We want to identify it for what it is. I'm sympathetic for folks that uh, dislike the culture and its decay. I'm sympathetic for the desire to maybe live somewhere where people are like-minded. I get that. But we cannot leave the planet until he takes us to heaven. And attempts to do so are misguided, as the Apostle Paul speaks of when he talks about the folks that we are to separate from. All right? And so let's look at some other issues here as well. Verse 3 says, They bend the tongue like their bow. They, uh, they, they're deadly with uh, the tongue. Uh, lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Culture is completely saturated with lies, so much so that the lies are now the accepted truth. And anyone who stands for the truth will themselves be called the liar, even as our Savior was called the liar. So too will we be called liars when we hold fast to the truth. It almost sounds like an American political season here in, uh, in some of these verses. Let every, verse 4, Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor. Do not trust any brother, because every brother deals craftily, and uh, everyone, every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. You know, in some respects, um, it's just descriptive of what we deal with in, in society, uh, the breakdown of society and the culture for what it is. Uh, we used to talk to some of our inmates in the jail that, man, they would go to these unbelievable lengths to commit their crimes and pour in so much time and energy and effort. And if they spent half that amount of energy at, at gainful employment, they could uh, support themselves. What are they doing in all of these schemes and all of these uh, exhausting um, uh, machinations that they come up with. Finally, then verse six, your dwelling is in the midst of deceit through deceit. They refuse to know me declares the Lord. 
And this is really an a, uh, indictment right here. It's not that they cannot know him, it's that they choose not to know him. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And they have worked as hard as they possibly can to convince themselves that there is no God. Because they don't want to be accountable to the God that created them. And so through deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And so we shouldn't be surprised. This is the fallen world in which we live. Uh, the father of lies is running this place. The father of lies so shapes the, a degenerate culture as to produce a seemingly unanimous worldview of falsehood. A seemingly unanimous worldview. You look around you and you wonder, are there any normal people left? Is there anyone that holds to truth? What, what kind of world are we living in? Like we're living in bizarro world or something out of the comic books where everything is backwards and upside down and inside out and, and everything is just confusion. Well, where does that come from? It doesn't come from our God, let me tell you that, because our God is not the author of confusion. But it does come from the God of this age. And that's the nature of it. He is a liar and he is the father of lies. And this whole world, this whole arrangement gets shaped in his image. And I find that interesting because the creation itself, he's not a creator. He is a creature, same as we're creatures. But he has so perverted the creation so as to alter the present arrangement. And that's what cosmos is, is the arrangement. Never lose sight of that. Anytime you apply your cosmetics, just remind yourself, okay, ladies, not men. Um, <laughs> when you are applying your cosmetics, Remind yourself that it's the arrangement of your face. It's the arrangement of this creation that speaks to the cosmos, all right? Including all the gender confusion issues that are out there these days. People can't figure out what bathroom to go in anymore because it's not just the simple male-female he created them in uh, the simplicity of God's design. All right. And so in verse 3 and in verse 6, again, we have this emphasis that it is universal. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. It's one thing if you have a culture that's basically more or less ethical and honest, and, and you can trust business dealings and so forth. I'm, I'm not talking on a spiritual level, just simply on, a, on an earthly level, just simply in terms of the, the conduct of business. And then you expect a, a contractor that's supposed to be there on a Thursday at, at 9 o'clock, then they're going to be there on a Thursday at 9 o'clock. But when that breaks down and there's no truth in a the land, then what are you left with? Likewise, in verse 6, your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. You know, change, put a change of address form into the post office. You now live in deceit, all right? And through deceit, they refuse to know me. And it becomes seemingly unanimous. Jesus spoke to this, and it's interesting, in Matthew 17, Matthew 17, 17, which you may recall from the Life of Christ series, Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Notice those are linked. All right, those are absolutely linked. And we don't want to be legalists and, and flamethrowers and fire-breathing, you know, Bible thumpers, although I kind of like the idea. But it's not just about yelling at the perverts. What is it that sparks those perversions? It is the unbelief. It is failure to be conformed to the truth. And it's the unbelief that feeds the perversions. And so we have the issues here. And this is... Uh, 
This is uh, something else. I laugh every time I read this chapter, right? Verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. (laughs) Okay? Every parent has prayed that prayer. All right? Anyway, this is the context for this. But here's the Lord, and he's giving the answer. And he is linking together unbelief with perversion and highlighting how it comes on a generational basis when it so saturates a generation. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And so when you identify that in your day and age, that your generation fits this description, and then you look to your children and you wonder, and your grandchildren, and you wonder, what kind of world are they going to grow up in? Will there be any faith on this earth? Say, these are the things that cause you to... uh, Study doctrine out of Jeremiah and pray hard pertaining to uh, these aspects. Remember, though, if every man on the planet is a liar, God himself remains faithful and true. And that's Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. This is Paul's great meganoito statement from Romans 3, 4. May it never be. And, And some folks may throw up their hands in despair. They may have a kind of a a jaded view on things you know what then if some did not believe their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of god will it may it never be all right may it never be be oriented properly to who god is rather let god be found true though every man be found a liar see every man be found a liar and i like that that romans 3 4 that's that's uh that ought to be a comfort and a hope you know if you can use hyperbole if you think about it we, we say everybody is corrupt. Is that literally true? Or is there a, a remnant of positive volition in this lampstand, for example? Or other lampstands across the state and across the country? I know that it's not every man that's serving Satan. We have not quite reached the days of Noah where there's just Noah and his wife and three sons and their wives. And I'm starting to wonder about some of them. All right, not the women, I'm talking about the sons. Noah was a righteous man. We don't have those statements made of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and I'm starting to wonder if, in fact, Ham, Shem, and Japheth had their own issues, but for Noah's sake, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and God redeemed the eight souls through the, uh, through the flood. Anyway, that's for a different class. But here's the father of lies shaping things, and we want to understand that separation is not a solution. Separation and isolation is no solution, all right? It's not just simply, well, let them all just go to Timbuktu, all right, or whatever. I might have said it on a Wednesday night, but it's Sunday. Let Just tell them all, they can just all go to, right? Like, anyway. Davy Crockett, in his famous quote when he left Congress, told all the congressmen where they could go because he was going to go to Texas, all right? And he comes to Texas and dies at the Alamo. But see, that's, is that the answer? Just to throw up your hands and tell all the unbelievers, well, to heck with you guys, right? No, because literally that's where they're going. They are going to hell. We ought to be giving them the gospel. We ought to be standing forth with truth. See? And so 1 Corinthians 5.10, Philippians 2.15, I think these are the antidote verses to communes. All right? Christian communes and how cults get started and things like that, all right? No, we ought to be engaged in our culture. We ought to interact 
with the fornicators around us in uh, whatever capacity that God calls us to interact. And I'm not saying that we fornicate with them, but I'm saying that we have commerce, business, we have interactions with them in the community. You know, I don't, I don't find out who my neighbors are and then find out if they're not saved and, well, I've got to change zip codes or something or you guys got to move or something of that nature. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, I think, sets this appropriately. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with fornicators. I did not at all mean with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Right? I mean, if you never ever want to know a fornicator, you pretty much have to leave the planet. Right? Or a swindler or a covetous or an idolater. The world is full of them. You might try to stop dogs from barking. That's what they do. Right? Dogs bark, cats meow. That's what they do. Unbelievers do what they do. We're the aliens and strangers. We're the peculiar people. We're the, we're the odd duck, right? The fish out of water. But actually, he said, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, any named brother. He names the name of Christ. He affirms that he belongs with you in the assembly. That's the one you got to deal with. <coughs> if he is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So as far as us judging one another, we're not judging those outside. We're not judging the unbelievers out there for what they're doing. We're judging us, ourselves, maintaining the standard of purity amongst our own flock. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And by the way, that's church, local church. That's not capital C, Church Universal. I'm not here to fix, you know, some other pastor's messed up flock. All right? I'm here to fix my own messed up flock. We, we, we deal with us. That's what we do. We deal with us. See? And that's our blessing. Separation and isolation. That's no s- solution. Okay? You can read in church history about some of these guys, and they would go sit in a cave somewhere. They'd go sit up on a pole. This one guy sat on a pole for 28 years or some crazy thing like that. They had to bring food to him, and he'd pull it up on a rope because he didn't come off that 60-foot pole. He just stayed up there in the pole that whole time. And uh, thinking, wow, you know, I trust he's saved. I hope to meet him in heaven and find out what were you thinking, you know? Man. Philippians 2.15. Philippians 2.15, another passage I think that kind of busts a, a hole in the, um, in the uh, issue here. Do all, uh, verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves, display yourselves, demonstrate yourselves. The whole idea of a, of a product demonstration like the lady at the grocery store that's giving you a little sample thing there. You are the lady at the grocery store and, and the samples you're giving out is, is, is you, is, is your walk in the body of Christ, is the will of God as you portray the doctrine. All right? And so it says, uh, you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. Notice though, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So, you know, I mean, we can grumble about how awful things are getting. Um, and they are. It's easy to do. 
But we can also take a small comfort or maybe a large comfort in the fact that the darker the darkness gets, the brighter we shine. That the, the, the more vile the culture becomes, we stand out as being considerably different. And that fact alone may become, uh, it may become easier in the coming generation, in the coming months and years ahead, that our witnessing may get loud and clear before we even open our mouth, just by how we conduct ourselves, how we live our lives in, uh, in that respect. So children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. We should be on display. We should be lights in the world. We shouldn't be, uh, you know, undercover. Some of us are some some Christians kind of become undercover Christians, and you wouldn't know they were they were saved to, to you know, because they they keep that so under wraps and so private. Well, it's just a matter of it's a that's a, that's a very personal matter. I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to tell somebody else about it. Well, really, what great commission have you been reading? What what uh, I mean, personal matter. See, should we not shine forth in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven? And I think, let's get to the next paragraph, verses 7 and following, I think we're going to see that being on display is an imitation of God. God himself is a God who displays himself. He displays himself in creation, and then ultimately he displays himself in his Son. And now that his Son is no longer incarnate walking this earth, we are Christ walking this earth. The body of Christ is now multiplied in plant, you know, uh, worldwide. God is just, and he requires of himself the irrefutable demonstration of that justice. God is on display, and he does this for a reason. Let's look at verses 7 through 16, and let's see how this connects. We can't get away from it all because we have to communicate the justice of God. That's what God's doing. He's communicating his own justice, and he's going to do so through us. We get to go to this lost and dying world and not tell them how special we are. Tell them about the justice of God and how that justice of God was, was uh, directed towards His Son. Jesus Christ bore the guilt. He accepted the wrath so we don't have to. God is on display. This becomes vital, I think. Um, let's look at these, verses 7 through 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, and remember, this is the therefore that follows that ugly description of verses 1 through 6. They're just a bunch of liars that are wearing themselves out in their, in their evil. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and assay them. And for what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? What else can I do? How can I not judge these people, he says. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit. With his mouth one speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly he sets an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? If he lets this stuff slide, he might as well just hang up his own title as God of truth. He is the God of truth. How can he not judge his people for the lies that they pursue? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself now we love avengers because well i'm not the comic book the 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 idea of god himself as our avenger it frees us up to not seek our own revenge it frees us up to not try to get back at other people we can let it all go because anything anything that was directed against us 
was a sin against God and Jesus Christ died on the cross for it. I can let that go. There is one who does vengeance because he's the only one suited and equipped to properly administer that vengeance, not us. And the idea of vengeance is a beautiful study. You can study the Hebrew on it. You can learn that the kinsman redeemer is also the kinsman avenger. Same Hebrew term. All right, and you get some, some amazing parallels related. Why do you think he is the redeemer? Because he's the avenger. All right. And there's, there's patterns for that. There's patterns of justice. The kinsman was invited to cast the first stone if, in fact, your family member was the one that was murdered. And you're going to have your hand involved in the community justice against the murderer. You got to put your hand as the first stone against that murderer, all right, under Mosaic Law and the, the stone throwing there. There's principles at work. But understand who our Savior is and why vengeance is His. Vengeance is not ours. I think this becomes an important study as well. I wish we could take 10 weeks here to study the vengeance of God. It would be very fruitful. Verse 10 says, For the mountains I will take up, uh, for, the, for the mountains, for their sake, I will take up a weeping and a wailing, and for the pastures of the wilderness, a dirge. Not only for the people, but the consequences on the very land itself. The land has been defiled. Their sin has polluted the land, which is why the land needs its rest. He's got to send Israel into 70 years of captivity just so the land itself can get a break from all the defilement they've been subjected to. Uh, and so the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the sky and the beasts have fled. They are gone. <clears throat> I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Yeah, it gets rough at that point. All right. Then verses 12 through 16. Who is the wise man that may understand this? All right, it's one thing to just simply say, look at this. There are a bunch of liars. God's a God of truth. He has to execute justice. Okay, we get that, but look at the second part of this section, 12 through 16. Jeremiah is inviting men of wisdom to agree. Men of wisdom and and insight. Believers with capacity, with maturity and doctrine to stand and testify to say, yes, God is just. God does display his justice and he is absolutely right to do so. He would be wrong if he does not. He would be unfair if he does not. If he lets Israel slide in their idolatry, then a Gentile nation could stand up and say, you're an unrighteous judge. They could point their finger at Yahweh Elohim and say, you are cutting the Jews of some slack. And he could assign unfairness to God. And if there is any valid unfairness, then God is no longer the righteous judge of the universe. And we're not saved. You understand? The only way for you and I to have eternal life is for God to be the righteous judge of the universe and to assign our guilt to Jesus Christ and to declare us righteous in his sight. If he shows favoritism, then our whole basis of eternal life is a fraud. You understand, this is a big deal right here in this chapter this morning. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? It's one thing to know it, but then you get to become the teacher. Why is the land ruined, laid waste like a desert so that no one passes through? And the Lord has said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it. Why is the United States of America under judgment right now? Is it for economic reasons, military reasons, political reasons? 
Or do we have a nation that's departing from the truth of the Word of God? And now our polluted land is receiving judgment. They've walked after the stubbornness of their heart and after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Verse 15, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them this people with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom they have, uh, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have annihilated them. The sixth cycle of discipline is national destruction. All right, and there it is. So we have God absolutely fair in every single thing that he does. And not only fair to himself, but fair in all objective observation. That's why the angels are watching. We're on display. He is demonstrating his fairness. He is demonstrating his justice. And if he does not do that complete demonstration, then some fallen angel or sinful human could level an accusation like Job's accusers or Job himself and say, God, you're not fair. He has to manifest his fairness, which is why it takes 42 chapters for Job to finally catch on and say, yes, God, you are fair, and you have, de- te- you have very patiently demonstrated that patience, uh, that uh, fairness. All right? You know, if you have external behavior that masks internal thinking, that's hypocrisy, and God sees through that. The avenger will deal with that. Jeremiah 9, verses 8 and 9. External behavior that masks internal thinking. And maybe it's violence, maybe it's uh, uh, sexual betrayal, maybe it's uh, religiosity, whatever it is. Humans have a, a great talent, a fallen talent in Adam, to be able to have an external show of something positive while inwardly the soul is as wicked as anything. Whitewashed tombs that look beautiful and, glo- and glorious in the sunlight but inside they're full of dead men's bones. And so uh, we have the application there out of verses 8 and 9 related to the hypocrisy and the punishment. The avenger sees it. The avenger sees it. And this is true in all disingenuous uh, deception. Like I say, from violence to the sexual betrayals, right? Uh, Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Why? For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That's what it says in Hebrews 13. He is the avenger, the eternal avenger. God universally demonstrates that he is just and the justifier of the unjust by grace through faith. This this really takes us into the depths of doctrine, of justification that we get out of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Join me there. Hold your finger in Jeremiah 9. And let's take a look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter, that's why it's public. That's why the crucifixion was public. That's why the resurrection was public. That's why everything God did is on display to men and angels alike. Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. And we have manifestations. By the way, this is why Israel was placed under law for 1,400 years, 1,500 years. There was a visible display of God's holiness and how no human can measure up. And the evidence became undeniable that Mosaic law can't save anybody. 
So in Romans 3.21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, that is, displayed. We're dealing with some of these issues in Galatians right now because the deeds of the flesh are evident. They are on display. They are observable. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament Scripture shows the standard of righteousness is perfection and we don't cut it. We fall short. I fall short. You fall short. Every human you've ever met has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the the law testifies to that. The prophets testify to that. God himself testifies to that because he's the one that sent the law. But even the, even, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. The universal provision for each one of us to take advantage of. Keep in mind, this includes those like you and I that were saved after the cross looking backwards, but also for those who were saved in the Old Testament looking forward that they were saved trusting that a coming deliverer is going to come and is going to remove their sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice, verses 24 through 26 here, notice now, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We get justified. It's a passive verb. It happens to us. And it's a gift, it's grace, we can't earn it, we can't buy it. It's not a purchase, it's a gift. By His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, it's the only one. Whom God displayed publicly. That's the point I'm getting at this morning. The public nature. Everything is out in the open. His judgment function has to be public. All of the Gentile nations have to be put on notice why the Jewish nation is being judged. See, it's public. That's how God operates. Same thing with us. It's public. That's why Christ was crucified in public. That's why he wasn't just murdered in private. That's why he wasn't thrown off a cliff. That's why he wasn't stoned in some obscure little place. That's why he was hung on a cross in full public view. Right there at the capital of, uh, of the Jewish people whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction in His blood through faith, fully publicly viewed, men and angels alike. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. What was He trying to prove? Everything. The demonstration of His righteousness. If He does not spare His own Son then what would his attitude be like towards us? What would his attitude be like towards any sinner if he does not spare his own sinless, perfect, righteous, holy son? And the whole display for men and angels alike has to see this. And you'll notice, to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed It's proof for every Old Testament believer that's in Abraham's bosom trusting that a Savior was coming. He sends His Son. He sends His Son. That's why when Jesus said, is it possible for this cup to pass by me? Not at all. You've got got 4,000 years of believers trusting in the coming Messiah that died and went to Abraham's bosom that are still waiting for the Messiah to come. 
and to take away the sin of the world. And so he demonstrates his righteousness because of the forbearance of God. He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. And here's the conclusion of this. Verse 26, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, if he has not proven his own just status, then we have no business testifying to him as the one who has justified us. You see how that works? He can't be a legitimate justifier if he does not prove and demonstrate his status as eternally, absolutely just. That's what's going on. And that's what we go back to Jeremiah 9 and we see what's happening here. How can he not judge Israel if he does not? If he compromises, if he winks at sin, if he you know, accuses and excuses, accusing the Gentiles and excusing the Jews, then he's not the eternal, absolute, righteous judge that he actually is. And if he forsakes that, then he's not the God that can save anybody. This becomes so huge. And by the way, this, we can use this in our parenting, we can use this with children, we can use this in training. All right. When you discipline a child, it's not because you hate them or it's not because uh, uh, it's because you're fair. It's because this is the standard and you have violated the standard. And these are the consequences of violating the standard. And it is absolutely fair and it should be absolutely fair amongst all the children. All right. You don't let the little one slide because they're the little one and they got daddy wrapped around their finger. Okay. As the case may be. I think the firstborn gets it hardest. And then, honestly, I think it's just fatigue. I think parents just get worn out. And by the time that fourth one comes along, I mean, they can just do whatever, you know? <laughs> but it, that's wrong. I mean, I'm, we're laughing. We're all laughing this morning. But I'm glad God didn't have the fatigue by the time the church age came around. You know what I'm saying? He is the absolute just justifier. And if he's not just, how can he justify? That's the point. If he is the kind of God that, uh, I mean, that'd be like the Greek pantheon, right? I mean, those guys were constantly lying and scheming and going back on what they promised and changing their minds about whatever. And they're all getting, their feeling is hurt. Aphrodite gets all upset because some human was claimed to be prettier than she was. And so this goddess gets all offended over something. And I mean, it's like, it's like a soap opera, reading the, reading the Greek pantheon in those things. None of them are the absolute standard of justice that God himself declares. All right, and then the invitation for those with insight. Man, raise your hand, especially because you're a church-age believer. You have the full count, whole counsel of the Word of God. We have the complete mind of Christ in the written revelation of God's truth. The believer with God's wisdom will apprehend the plan of God and the necessity of For the absolute holy God to be true to himself. The absolute necessity for the holy God to be true to himself. You and I, the more that we're conformed to the truth of God's word, the more we will love what God loves and hate what God hates. The more we will testify to his righteousness and his justice. The more we will be in agreement. 
I know why our nation's being destroyed. I'm in agreement. In fact, if God was less merciful than he is, I mean, I, I would have wiped this out a long time ago. But then again, I'm, I'm finite. I'm hypocritical. I'm fickle. Okay? But the believer with God's wisdom will apprehend the plan of God and the necessity for the absolute holy God to be true to himself. This is what happens when the Spirit of God leads us into the truth. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 16. The Holy Spirit leads us into all things, even the deep things of God. We should be like-minded with God as He reveals Himself. We should have this insight more than any Old Testament saint. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 16. And ultimately, too, the uh, I didn't put it on the screen, but the best promise of this i think comes in the the overcomer reward of revelation 3 that he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death that we will be so like-minded with jesus christ himself that even watching our loved ones at the great white throne thrown into the lake of fire won't hurt see we're not there yet i think right now it would hurt to see some of my loved ones go to go to the lake of fire but by then we will have received the overcomer rewards and the second, the second death won't hurt us at that point. Anyway, that's a, that's a separate message all by itself. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. This is what we are. This is our blessing. And it goes down to to uh, verse 16 who has known the mind of the lord that he will instruct him but we have the mind of christ you and i have the mind of christ this is what he's provided for us a completed canon of scripture and the permanent indwelling of god the holy spirit we have resources that no believer of any previous stewardship has ever been given ever see this is, by the way, is going to also be expanded upon when we get to the tribulation. Daniel chapter 12 speaks of believers in the tribulation. They're going to know more than we will. They're going to go beyond what we have in the church age, not because they get an extra canon. They're going to have the same Old Testament, New Testament we have, but they're going to actually have functioning prophets in the, in the seven-year tribulation. They're going to have additional teaching that will provide them an even greater insight into things that we can't answer today. Jeremiah, uh, Daniel chapter 12, talking about those with insight. Those with insight, those with like-mindedness with God Himself that understand and agree with the truth of God's Word. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's a promise made through Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, but it applies to the Jews in the tribulation. Those who have insight, uh, they're also a little bit lower in the chapter as well. Verse 10, those, uh, the wicked get repurged and purified and refined. The, the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And then, yeah, 1,290 days, 1,335 days. What are those about? I have no idea. I don't know. I've taught Daniel seven times in Ukraine. I don't know what those numbers are. All right, and if there's anybody in the church age that tells you they know what those numbers are, they're lying, all right? They're going to know when they get there. They're going to know in the tribulation. 
the Jewish prophets will have it revealed to them. I have some suspicions. I suspect a couple of things. I've got opinions. I've got lots of opinions. But I can't prove it, and no one can until it happens. And that's for them, not for us. That's why he says in verse 9, Go your way, Daniel. These words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. And someone who tries to tell you he can unfold them or unseal them or tell you what it means today, he's probably got a book for sale. He's probably making money on the whole process. I can't tell you what those are. Interestingly enough, do you know how the book of Hosea ends? Hosea 14, verse 9. It's the last verse of the last chapter of the last prophet to the northern kingdom of of Israel. The northern kingdom that was swept away 150 years before the southern kingdom was swept away. I think uh, Jeremiah is echoing Hosea's message. Jeremiah is giving Judah what Hosea gave Israel. Giving them a message of judgment and admonishing whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. You and I are privileged to know the Word of God and to testify. To testify that His ways are right. His ways are just. Absolutely just. And we are to have that wisdom. We are to have that insight. And we are to be in agreement. We are to be in agreement in our generation. And it's, uh, it's not always the easiest thing to do. And yet this is what we're called to do in this, uh, in this respect. Then we get to verses 17 and following. Jeremiah 9 to the end of the chapter. 17 down to verse 26. Thus says the Lord of hosts. All right. Yahweh Sivayoth. We sing that in uh, a mighty fortress is our God, right? Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same. It's kind of interesting that a term like that shows up in our hymnody because it's his battlefield name. It's the Lord of hosts. When the Lord God of the army shows up, it's typically not a happy message. It is, it is the, it is the uh, uh, commander in chief of the military forces of heaven that, that are coming to wreak judgment. And uh, what we have here, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women that they may come. Right? When is it time to call for hospice? When is it time to call for the mourning women, the the weepers and wailers? And, um, you know, when that phone call gets made, you know, it's, it's over, right? When that phone call gets made, the, uh, in the ancient world, they had professional uh, wailers. Okay, and 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 the, if you wanted to really show your sorrow, you hired more. <laughs> you know, you could prove how much you really, really lamented something by whether you you know you hired six or twelve or twenty or a hundred of these wailing women. These were professional wailers, professional um, mourners. All right, and and they they could earn some some a good income this way, and and they could weep and wail and carry on and all the histrionics of things. All right, and you could really show how much you you miss somebody. See, when when Jesus wept, they said, "Oh, how he loved him!" Right? It's a demonstration of of your love for Lazarus or whoever the departed person is. Consider and call for the mourning women that they may come, and send for the wailing women that they may come. Get them both. Uh, let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may shed tears and our eyelids flow with water. See, at a certain point, you just run out of tears. So you can hire extra people to come in and 
and uh, they can continue on in the weeping and the wailing. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion, how we are ruined, we are put to great shame, we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. Now hear this, now hear the word of the Lord, you women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing, and everyone her neighbor a dirge. In other words, let's get some reality to what we're doing. Let's teach what the content is for. Let's have a real sorrow to match the histrionics that you're so good at displaying. You know, the external shows of emotionalism and regret, they are no substitute for internal, genuine repentance. They are no substitute for internal, genuine repentance. This is so vital. Because I think there are entire denominations and, you know, and very emotional branches of Christianity. I used to work with a fellow, and he was a flaming Pentecostal and things. And, and just we'd talk about stuff, and we'd compare notes on, on Monday mornings and things. And it just, sometimes I'd, I'd just kind of say, okay, you know. And he'd say, well, you know this. Does, does your church ever cast out demons? Things like that. Because we were kind of boring, I think, in a lot of Monday mornings, you know. And I'd say, well, we're not as spectacular as perhaps your. And I just wanted to be gracious. I still do. I absolutely do. You know, they love the Lord. I just would like to see them have some reality to the emotionalism. See, because we can go the other direction. We can have so much reality of doctrine that we become dull, emotionless Vulcans or something. You know, we've got to have some kind of passion. We've got to have some kind of hunger. And uh, we just don't want to have it separated from the reality of God's truth. Is this making any sense this morning or I have another migraine coming on? Is this? All right. So verses 17 through 26 here, the, the external shows. How good are they? You know, you can, you can hire these guys. <laughs> you can hire them. Uh, verse 21, for death has come up through our windows and has entered our place, our palaces, to cut off the children from the streets, the young men from the town squares. I mean, it's one thing when street people hurt. That always happens. But even the rich people can't get bailed out now. They're really, everybody's struggling. Starvation hits everybody. Speak. In verse 22, thus says the Lord, the corpses of men will fall like dung in the open field and like the sheaf after the reaper, uh, but no one will gather them. And, uh, I mean, who's, who's going to bury the dead when everybody's dying? That's, you know, there's the issues there. That's kind of gruesome. All right. I think we are familiar with these principles. These hired weepers and wailers, they're worthless. What, I mean, what are you really doing? Hired weepers and wailers are worthless, as is every tear of personal regret. See, regret is not repentance. Don't confuse the two. I think far too often they get confused. And people will actually substitute regret for legitimate repentance and true spirituality. That so long as you feel really, really sorry for your sins, well, then that counts for something. And if you don't feel sorry enough, well, then your uh, repentance is not genuine. And that's flawed logic. That is not biblical. We've got examples in, in Matthew 27 and in Hebrews 12. We've got examples whereby there's all kinds of weeping and wailing. Judas felt bad about betraying Jesus. Did you know that? So, I mean, 
You could encounter unbelievers on the street every day, and many of them may feel really bad about what they've done. But that doesn't save anybody. All right? Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5. So uh, here comes the arrest and the trial, and they bound him and led him away, delivered him up to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. That's not metanoia. That's not metanoia. That's not the verb to repent. It's not the noun repentance. All right? He felt remorse. Metamelamai, there's an emotional response. He felt remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Oh, that'll make it better. Yeah, you can undo what you've done. Just give the money back. Saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. No refunds. (laughs) All right. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. He went away and he hanged himself. Is he in heaven today? Did he repent? No. He's in hell today. He did not repent. Scripture is clear on that regard. Likewise, Hebrews 12, 17. Here's the example of Esau. He sold his birthright for a pot of stew. Afterwards, he regretted it. Can he get the birthright back? Do the tears count for anything? And the warning comes towards us. See to it. All right. Uh, verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, no, uh, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. What is it that you're willing to compromise your birthright for? You know, see to it there be no fornicator or godless person like Esau. And here we have a birthright in Christ, and you're going to throw it away for what? For a fling, for a thrill, for a what? And you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, even though he sought for it with tears. There's no repentance there. There's regret. There's tears. There's all kinds of sorry. Not repentance. We, we have to know that. We have to know that in our Christian walk. Then uh, my favorite verses of this chapter, and quite possibly some of my favorite verses in the whole book of Jeremiah, um, come up right here about our boasting in God. Let not, verse 23, Jeremiah 9, 23, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. See, being able to testify with the God of justice means you know God. You know his heart, you know his thinking, you know his nature, you know him. And you're being molded in his image. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. We know him and we know what he delights in. Right? Were you with us in Proverbs 8? Do you see what the Father delights in? In his Son? And who we are in Christ? We get to boast in in the Lord. What a privilege. The true infinite blessing is to understand and know the Lord 
the God of loving kindness, justice, and righteousness, i.e., we know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I think uh, you can rewrite these verses out of Jeremiah as Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. You want to be intimate with the Father? Be intimate with the Son. Be occupied with Christ. Know Jesus Christ. Boast in Him. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Oh, these are important. Our privilege is to boast in the Lord. We get to boast in the Lord. I think some people avoid all boasting because they don't want to do the bad boasting. And so that because they don't want to do the bad boasting, they just write off all kinds of boasting, right? And that's not a solution because we should have the good boasting. We should boast in the Lord. And uh, in aspects there. So Jeremiah 9, 24, and all the, the allusions and citations in the New Testament, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. Do I have anything else to boast in? No, nothing whatsoever. I'm a great sinner, but I've got a great God. Say, I can boast in that. I can boast in Jesus Christ and him crucified. I can't boast in anything of myself. I know what I've deserved. I should be in the lake of fire. All right. So 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 31, we, we should boast in the Lord. I don't mind boasting. We had some uh, visitors here yesterday, and they occasionally were, were saying things like, you have a nice church here. I said, yes, I do. And the building is also nice. And they had no capacity to understand that. But the point being, of course, they're talking about the building. You and I understand the church is the people. And I want to boast in the Lord. You bet I want to boast in the Lord. I'll tell you how great this, this flock is. I'll tell you all these other great things. Not because of anything we've done or earned or deserved, but because God is so great. It's unbelievable. It makes I laugh to think about all the stuff He does in spite of us, through us. So 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 says, By His doing. See, none of us can boast. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Consider your calling, brethren. Isn't this powerful? Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. See, that's, that's right there with Jeremiah 9. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the mighty man boast of his strength. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. The base things of the world, the despised, God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. He doesn't just look down and find the people that most deserve salvation and say, oh, well, they deserve it. I can't help myself. I've got to give them eternal life. Or, oh, they're the, they're the most special people on the planet. I've got to make that guy a pastor. No. He finds the biggest knucklehead around and says, that, that schmuck, that's, that guy's got to be a pastor because he certainly doesn't deserve anything. See? The things that are not. That way, other people can look and go, wow, God's powerful. <laughs> Man, look what God can do with that knucklehead. What, you think he can do something for me? Absolutely. That's the, that's the point. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Do we have anything to boast in? No, just him, just God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption and might and power and glory and everything else. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'll talk all day long about the great things God has done. Because he's, he's the one that's done it. 2 Corinthians 10, 17. 
See if I can squeeze these in real quick and then we're running out of time. He who boasts is to boast in the Lord and that's not boasting beyond our measure, preaching and the applications there that Paul gave to them. And finally, Galatians 6.14. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So our boasting has to be in the Lord. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the prophet Jeremiah who very faithfully delivered a message in agreement. He didn't like it. He was weeping. There was a part of him that wanted to, to just go find a hut somewhere in the wilderness and, and not even look at the, the judgment when it came. And yet, Father, he was in agreement. He had the wisdom that none of his elders had. He had the divine viewpoint perspective to know that you are just and the justifier of the unjust. Father, I pray that we ourselves might uh, make such applications, that we might be like-minded with you in your judgment, that we might uh, testify as children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I pray, Father, that we might be so in tune with your work that we can testify, that we can be in agreement each step of the way. Father, that we might then be able to, uh, to boast and to sing and to glorify and to praise you for all that you have done. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.